Well, good morning. Are you surprised? Let me tell you, you're not near as surprised as I am. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Rocky is, poor guy, stuck in Oklahoma City with his daughter and son-in-law and grandchild. We really need to lift him up in prayer. <laughs> they, uh, because of all the weather, they have not been able to get, but they were going through Atlanta. That was the problem. They were going through Atlanta, and that caused him not to be able to make it. So he called me yesterday afternoon around 1.45 and asked me if I'd be willing to, to uh, preach the sermon this morning. And I said, I would be glad to. There's one, I guess, drawback is I did not have time to do my hair, and I hope that y'all will forgive me for that. <laughs> hair is important to this staff. And uh, so, uh, so I am just as I am. The... Uh, uh, we have been talking about The Walking Dead, and the truth is that as y'all have been aware and you've been a part of these messages, you understand that uh, people are dead in their trespasses and sins, and they don't realize they're dead. And what we want to help everyone to understand are what are the evidences of life, of real life, abundant life, the type of life that Jesus had, had promised. You know, the first vital sign that we talked about, that in fact that there was life, is that there's an awareness of my sinful condition. I understand that I am a sinner, and I need forgiveness. In 1 John, it said, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us, from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in us. That is the first sign that we truly have life. There are many who really try to cover up their sins and refuse to admit them. Uh, they don't want people to know that, in fact, that they have messed up and that, uh, that they have sinned. But God says that one of the very first signs that we do have life is that we're willing to admit it, we're willing to confess it, we're willing to get right with God. Are you aware of your sinful nature? Have you acknowledged it to God? Has your sin, has your sin broken your heart? Do you desire to turn from your sin? Those are questions that should let us know whether we do have that vital sign of life. The second vital sign we talked about was obedience to God's command. John said in uh, 1 John 2, 3, and 4, he says, We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. If you want to know whether you're really a child of God, you really need to simply ask yourself this question. Do I obey the commands of Scripture? Now, we're not, really, we're not talking about being perfect, but is there a desire in your heart when you hear what God wants out of your life, what he wants you to do, that there's a willingness in your heart, there's a desire in your heart to obey it? See, that is a sign that, in fact, you do have life. If you don't want to obey his commands or if you can ignore them without any, uh, without any concern, that would be a sign that you don't have life. Someone once said, the man that believes obeys. Failure to obey is convincing proof 
that there is no true faith present. Do you have a desire? Do you have a desire to follow the Lord and do what he commands because you love him? This morning, we're going to focus on the third vital sign of life, which is a change in my affections. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, as we read that scripture. And let's all stand in honor of God's word as we read this together. It says, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But the man who does not, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Father, I pray that you would bless your word, that your Holy Spirit, who is present here this morning, would take your word, the living word, and apply it to our hearts and lives, that we would be better servants of yours. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the spring of 1519, the famous explorer, Hernando Cortez, landed at Veracruz with 700 men and 11 ships coming to explore the new world. Upon landing, he did something that was absolutely shocking to his men. He commanded that all 11 ships would be burned. The reason he did that is so that they would understand. They would realize there is no turning back. And that's really the way it should be for Christians. That we should realize when we make this commitment to Jesus Christ that we are making a radical break with our past and with the system that the Bible calls the world. Our lives should be dramatically altered. Our wants, our desires, our allegiances have changed. Steve Lawson in his book, Absolutely Sure, says it this way. What we once loved, we now loathe. And what we once were indifferent toward, we now embrace. Like the classic song that many of us have sung before, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Has that about face taken place in your life? Think about it. Have you been radically transformed to the point that you have burnt your bridges or burnt your ships? Many say they know Christ, but they've never severed their ties to the past. Now, as we look at this passage that we just read, John does two things. First, he encourages us. 
In verses 12 through 14, John begins telling us who we are in Christ. And as he does, as he begins to do that, he really gives us the four stages of spiritual development. He begins by reminding us that we begin our spiritual life as newborn babies. Look at that passage again in uh, verse 12. He says, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. The word he uses for children in verse 12 is the Greek word technion, which means born ones. This refers to everyone who is a part of God's family. Now, John is affirming here the biblical truth that we become a part of God's family by birth. In fact, remember, it was Jesus who said this, you must be born again. And when we are born again, it says that we receive God's forgiveness. I mean, one of the things that should radically change us is that that sin problem that we've been dealing with all our lives, when we come to that point of committing our life to him, has been dealt with. The scripture says the wages of sin is death. Death now. We're not just talking about a physical death. We are talking about a spiritual death that lasts for all eternity. And God has dealt with that. When we become his children, he has cleansed us. He's wiped away all our sins. He's cast them as far as the east is from the west. Our sins have been forgiven. And that's a reason to celebrate. In Ephesians 1.7, it says, In him meaning Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, I don't know if that excites you, but it does me. Because, man, I know what I am without Christ. Listen to me. We are all sinners, lost, worthless without Christ. But when we are in Christ, when we come to him, man, he just takes and cleanses us. Do you know that God's standard for you to get into heaven is perfection? How many have reached that? But Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. The scripture also says, be holy for he is holy. We can't do it. We're sunk. We're lost. We're without hope. But Jesus, but Jesus died for us. In him, that's Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. His blood has washed away our sins. That blood has paid the penalty for our sins. And we are forgiven. That ought to make a Baptist shout. Man, we have been forgiven. And Acts, is, 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 uh, uh, they were preaching there. It says, through Jesus, listen to this. The forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything. Now, why does John begin there when he's going through these four stages of development? Because radical transformation in our lives, now get this, radical transformation in our lives can only take place when we have been forgiven of our sins, when we've been born again. So the first stage is just simply becoming a new baby. But then John also writes to fathers, young men, and children. Notice what he says in the next two verses, verses 13 and 14. He says, I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. So we see fathers. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children. And that's a different word than the word children we had before. Because you have known the father. 
I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. So we move into, from newborns into childhood. And that word there really talks about uh, immature ones. Now there are believers who have not yet matured in their faith. Keep in mind this very fact when it comes to spiritual maturity that it has nothing to do with age. Obviously some of the most spiritually immature people that maybe have been in your life have been those who were physically oldest. Spiritual maturity does not have anything to do with age but it does have to do with spiritual development. The truth is We've all been in that children phase, but we are not to stay children. We should develop into young adults. And these young men are spiritual warriors and overcomers. They are battling and defeating Satan because the word of God lives in them. If we want to have victory over Satan, if we want to have victory over over the world, the word of God's got to live in us. The word of God is important. You know, in Ephesians chapter 6... You may be familiar with the passage. It talks about the armor, the spiritual armor that a believer is to wear. You know, the breastplate of faith, the helmet of salvation, different things. Did you know that there's one offensive? They're all defensive weapons. There's one offensive weapon in there, in that list of the armor. And it's the sword of the spirit, which is, the Bible explains, the word of God. It is the word of God that is the offensive weapon. As we go out to do battle, and I will tell you, there is a spiritual battle going on in your life. You may not know it, but there is. And the one offensive weapon we have is the word of God. It's the one that Jesus used. Do you remember when he was tempted in the wilderness? Remember when Satan was tempting him? What did Jesus do? He quoted scripture. Remember, he was hungry, and Satan said, you're so hungry, why don't you just turn these stones into bread? And Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He quoted scripture, and he did that every single time. You need to spend time. You need to know the word of God. If you're going to be victorious, in the battles that you are facing. Ask yourself a question. When's the last time you spent time in God's words? I'm not talking about Sunday school. I'm not talking about coming to worship. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about at your home, in a quiet place, opening up the word of God, reading it, studying it, applying it to your life. This is young men Young women, what we need to go out and do spiritual battle. But then he moves on, talk about spiritual parents. And here John addresses the fathers. These are the ones who are mature in the faith. And I want you to notice something. Uh, Someone is a father because they have children, right? (laughs) That's basic biology. They reproduce themselves. The question is, and and surely with fathers here, is that they have reproduced themselves. In fact, what this is really talking about when someone's a father in the faith, uh, really John considered himself in many ways a father, and to the believers that he shared the gospel with, he considered them his children. 
But are you a father to anyone? Have you reproduced yourself? The truth is that the gospel is the most powerful thing on this earth. Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Listen, it is the power of God. It's the most powerful thing on earth. It is so powerful that it can take a person who's a sinner, who's dead in their trespasses and sins, and give them new life, make them a new creation. But the question is, would you fit into that category? Would you be a parent? Would you be a spiritual father? Are you in the word? Are you spending time getting to know the father? Well, in verse 15, John moves from encouraging us to exhorting us, to warning us. Listen to what he says in 1 John 2, 15. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is not simply an observation or statement. It is a command. It is an imperative. Do not love the world. Our problem is we try to water this down. But there's no way to get around it or interpret it a different way. He basically says that love for the world and love for God cannot coexist. They are diametrically opposed. They are mutually exclusive. Love for God begins when love for the world is renounced. If we say that we love the Lord and yet continue to love the world, the love of the Father is not really in us. Stephen Lawson put it this way. He says, conversion is a fork in the road experience. The paths to two kingdoms lay before us. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. To choose one is to refuse the other. No one can travel both roads at once. What is this conversion? What is this choice that we make? Well, it is a change of masters. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Think about, you you remember the story, the, the rich young ruler? Even though he really, he really wanted to follow Jesus. And I believe that there was a desire within him to follow Jesus. His desire for the world was so strong that he was willing to forsake. He was willing to forsake Jesus to follow the world. He left very sad. This is what Jesus said. Any of you who does not give up everything... He cannot be my disciple. Let me read that again so it can kind of soak in. (laughs) Any of you who does not give up everything, everything he has, cannot be my disciple. Well, what does that mean? I know some of you are thinking, what does that that mean? I got to empty my bank account, sell my home, you know, live in a tent. No, it doesn't mean that at all. Let me tell you, this is what it means. It's a question for you. Is Jesus enough? 
If you had nothing and all you had was Jesus, would that be enough for you? If you had a Job experience, (laughs) I mean, would you be able to say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Is Jesus enough? Let me tell you, for the, for the men of faith in the Bible, Jesus was enough. Moses, who was a, a leader in Israel, who led the children of Israel out of Egypt to the border of the promised land. Do you know what his one major prayer request, his one desire, he says to God, I beseech thee, show me your glory. Nothing was more important to him than to know God. David, who was known as a man after God's own heart, who went through severe trials, severe challenges and difficulties. Yet God was his one obsession. His word says, oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek thee. I long for you. My flesh thirsts for you as in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. David wanted God more than he wanted anything. And of course, Paul, who can forget what Paul says? He says, I count all these things, everything that I have, I count all these things but loss that I may know Christ. The question for you this morning, and you need to be very honest with yourself, is Jesus enough? The truth is you cannot just come to church. You cannot just come to Sunday school and say, I've done my duty. I've done my religious duty. Now God's happy with me. God wants everything. Not just a part, every bit of who you are. The question is, though, is he enough for you? We cannot be a believer and love the world and have our attachments towards the world. Our attachments, our our desires need to be completely devoted to Jesus Christ. So what is the world? Now, when we talk about that, I know people are saying, well, what do you mean by the world? Well, let's look at what the world is. First, it's not a physical world. When he uses that word, he's not talking about a physical world like the, the mountains, the lakes, uh, the, the, the ocean, uh, the, all the beautiful scenery. He is not talking about that. I love those things. When we go on vacation, we always go to places where I can get out in nature and see God's beautiful creation. So he's not talking about the physical world. And he's not talking about humanity or mankind. A lot of times when people talk about the world, they talk about humanity or mankind. And the Bible's clear. We are to love our neighbor. In fact, God loves the world, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You see, he loves the world. He loves humanity. That's why he died for you. That's why he gave everything. He gave it all for you. So what does he mean when he talks about the world? Well, the world that God opposes is the organized system. It is the organized system controlled 
by Satan that is both rebelling against God's authority and living in opposition to his rule. It represents everything that prevents us from loving and obeying God with all our hearts. The New English Bible puts it this way. Do not set your hearts on the godless world. The Bible has a lot to say about this world. We are told that there is a ruler of this world who is deceiving people. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says, The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. And again it says, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Do you remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the earth? Why was he able to do that? Because he is the ruler of this world. Now, one day, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord, and I look forward to that day happening, don't you? But right now, this world lies in the power of the evil. Guess what? This is, this is not your home. <laughs> you are just a passing through. We long for home, don't we? If you're a believer, you long. You long for home. <laughs> Let me tell you, this is the battlefield for us right now. And this world lies in the power of the evil one. Don't go attached to this world. We are told that Jesus died on the cross to deliver us from this world. Scripture says, who gave himself, that's Jesus, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world. That he might deliver us. There is a change of kingdoms with a change of affections. I mean, I, there was a time when I was a, king, I was a part of the kingdom of this world. In fact, man, I was, a, I was a, a prisoner of war, really. A slave to the things of this world. But one day Jesus came. Someone told me about Jesus, that he died on the cross for my sins and that he was buried. He rose again the third day so that I could have new life and I could have a new kingdom. And you know what happened when I went into that new kingdom? My affections changed. Yes, they did. I was doing things that was crazy. I was a disobedient teenager. And all of a sudden, I was doing things. Like cleaning my room. That's how my parents got saved. If something happened to that boy, <laughs> we got to find out what it is. I walked by one of our neighbors, and one of the dogs had knocked their trash all over the yard. You know what I did? I picked it up. That's right. Why? I was just so happy. I love Jesus. I want to do good things. I want to help people. There's a change in affections because there's a change in kingdoms. We are told that the world will hate those who follow Christ. Jesus says, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And again, he says, I have given them your word in his prayer to the heavenly father he says i've given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than i am of the world any wonder that there are more christians martyred than people from any other faith and it's getting worse more christian martyrs in the last 100 years than all history of the church age why 
Why are Christians so hated? Because they are not of this world. And the ruler of this world hates them. You may say, well, man, I don't feel hated. It, it could be. It could be that we're not making enough of an impact for the ruler of this world to even bother with us. The world will hate us. You want to be hated by the world? Go out there and start standing for the gospel. Go out there and start sharing the gospel with others. God tells us that when we become friends with this world, we become enemies of him. The book of James, it says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. He tells us not to be polluted by this world. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to keep oneself from being polluted by this world. And then finally, we are told to not conform Do not conform to this world. In Romans it says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. J.B. Phillips translated it this way, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. The problem is we define the world in a variety of ways. (laughs) It's interesting how people will define the world as sometimes best... uh, uh, helps them or works for them. Uh, Some say, you know, smoking and drinking is of the world, while others say it's not. Other people say that, uh, you know, playing cards is of the world and others will not. Uh, Some may say watching TV, like the guy who got rid of his TV came up to me and said, said, uh, man, I got rid of my TV. I'm not watching it anymore. That's Satan's idiot box. Do you have one? I don't know what to say. So I said, no. (laughs) Under my breath, I said, I got two. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. The fact is that we all have our different things, right? Uh, the, The truth is, and I want you to know, that if you feel like something's wrong, you shouldn't do it. There are some things that are definitely wrong. The Bible is clear on, and God hates sin, and God identifies them as sin. Some things can be debated, but uh, my rule of thumb is, when in doubt, don't. <laughs> it ain't worth it. It says anything, the Bible says anything that's not of faith is sin. So if you're in doubt, don't. But one thing is for sure, there can be a lot of hypocrisy. You know, it's kind of like the uh, guy who may preach about, you know, smoking and drinking, and he's got a big old belly, you know. He goes, at the potlucks, he goes back for thirds and fourths, right? Okay, that, that is being very particular about the sins that you want to talk about. But the truth is that our love for Jesus Christ is going to keep us from that. Someone gossiping, they may gossip and think nothing's wrong with it, but the Bible is just as clear on that. In fact, that's one of the reasons we need to know the whole counsel of God's word so that we can obey him properly. Anything that diverts your heart away from God and the things of God is of this world. So how does Satan 
get us? How does he get us into this world? What's his tricks? Let me tell you something. Do you know what? His tricks have not changed. They really haven't. It is the same old thing that he has always done. The way that he works to grab you, to draw you into the world, hasn't changed. Look at 1 John 2, 16. It says, For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Satan uses those same three things against us that he used against Adam and Eve. That's how far back it goes. The first time he tempted man, same strategy that he uses on you today. In Genesis 3, 6, it says, When the woman, catch this, saw that the fruit of the tree, she saw the lust of the eyes, was good for food. That's those cravings, natural cravings, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, the pride of life. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Fatal Attraction was about a movie by a man who finds himself attracted to another woman. He yields to the temptation thinking it'll be a brief encounter only to find he is trapped in an affair that threatens to destroy his life. We truly are attracted to things that destroy us. I promise you, half this crowd, I promise you could come up here and tell you about something they did, about some sin, something that seems so attractive and it hurt them. Probably more than half. The first thing John mentions is the cravings of sinful man. These are simply just natural appetites out of control. There's nothing wrong with the, uh, with the natural craving, with the natural appetite. They're good. Hunger, thirst, sex. These are not sinful. There's nothing wrong with any of them. Hunger is not sin. <laughs> Thank goodness, right? But gluttony is. Thirst is not evil, but drunkenness is. Sex is God's gift, but wrongly used, it is immorality. The world appeals to our normal appetites and tempts us to satisfy them in wrong ways. Next, John tells us about the lust of the eyes. This is desire to have what our eyes see. And I think we could all agree that we are a visually stimulated society, aren't we? I mean, that's why we have commercials. How many of you folks here watch the Super Bowl for the commercials? That's right. We are attracted to commercials. And people, uh, businesses know that we are stimulated through our eyes. Maybe men and women differently, but that is what grabs us. That's what uh, draws us in. And so that's why we have all the commercials. Our eyes are the main gate between the world and what is inside of us. This is what happened to Achan in Joshua 7. When the Israelites went into Jericho, God told them they were to destroy everything that was not devoted to God. But notice what Achan said in verse 21. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. It came through the eyes. He saw, he desired, he took. That's why David said in Psalm 119, turn my eyes away from worthless things, 
preserve my life according to your word. With all the garbage that is now on TV and the internet, we need to be very careful or Satan will fill us with the world. The final tool that Satan uses is pride or boasting of what one has and does, what one is. This word was described to, uh, was used to describe a braggart who was trying to impress people. Why are young couples or even old couples up to their ears in debt? Pride, a lot of times. They want the finest car, the nicest home, toys that they cannot afford. The problem with so many of us is that we care more about what others think than we do about what Jesus thinks. The pride of life is wanting to be the man. A lot of people who know me know that I used to do a horrible thing with my children. It was horrible. And I don't want you to hate me. I'm confessing here, okay? Transparency, as Rocky likes to say. Being transparent. But when I used to come home and my kids were little kids, I'd come in and I'd say, who the man? And all my kids would look at me and say, Daddy, you the man. That's right. They stopped doing that as teenagers. But for a little while, you know, it was really good. But the truth is, the pride of life is when we walk into a room and we want everyone to say, whoo, there's the man. There's the man. You know, Jesus was a servant. He wants us to be servants. And the pride of life is wanting to be something so much more than what we really are. We are sinners saved by grace. We are beggars trying to tell other beggars where to find bread. And we need to realize who we are in Christ and who we are without Christ. And that will take care of the pride of life. So where's your love? Where are your affections? Where's your allegiance? Are you more in love with this world than the Lord? Notice what John says in verse 17. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. The world is passing away. It's not permanent. You know, think about this. Where, where do you spend your time? What is, it that you, what is it that you think about? What is it that you dwell upon? What is it that's really important to you? That's where your affections are. But one of the signs of life, one of the vital signs of life, is that our affections are deeply wrapped up in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, believers around this world right now are making hard choices. Deny Christ or die. Deny Christ or be separated from your family. And what most of them are saying is that Jesus is enough. Now, we don't have to make those hard choices in our country, but we still have to make the choice. Is Jesus enough? Are you a hidden disciple? That would not be a vital sign of life. But a vital sign of life would be one where Jesus is your number one. He's your greatest valentine. He's the one that you love the most. He's the one that you would give your life for. He's more important than your wife, your mom, your dad, anyone in your life. Jesus is more important and your affections are turned and they are completely focused on him. But if you can live in this world and the things of the world can be more important to you than Jesus Christ, then you need to check where is your heart. A Christian can be lured into the world. It's happened to all of us. But the truth is that for a Christian, for someone who has life, there is guilt and shame. 
So what about it? Do you pass this third test? If everyone would just bow their heads and close their eyes, I want you to think about these questions. Do you want the assurance of salvation? Do you want to know? Do you want to know that you have escaped God's judgment? Then search your heart. This is just when you and God answer these questions truthfully. Is loving Christ your greatest priority? Does the world no longer appeal to you like it once did? Has your love for God, has your love for God now replaced your love for the world? When you are lured into the world and you mess up, do you feel guilt, do you feel shame and the need to confess it to the Lord? If you cannot give positive answers to these questions, then you need to re-examine the authenticity of your faith. For some of you this morning, in this message, you have realized that your affections were truly focused on the world and you need to be saved. Some of you, maybe at this point, you're just not sure. You're struggling, you're battling right now. I'm just not sure where my standing with Christ is. Maybe this morning you simply need to nail it down. If that's the case, I want to lead you in a prayer. And I just want you to pray it silently. You can repeat after me, but I want you to pray it to God from your heart. Heavenly Father, I know that I've sinned. I know that my affections have for too long been captivated by the world. And I ask you to forgive me. With all my heart, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that he rose again the third day. And at this very moment, this very morning, I turn away from all my sins. Lord, I turn away from the world. And I turn completely to Jesus. I give him my life. And I ask you to save my soul. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.